Hello, I'm Aisha Llewellyn, New Narratives Editor-in-Chief. In recent weeks, the Caliphate podcast produced by the New York Times has attracted controversy when its main star was arrested on terrorism hoax charges in Canada, raising questions about how journalists should report on the so-called War on Terror. On this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, I'm talking to Noor Huda Ishmael, a former member of Darul Islam, a social entrepreneur, filmmaker, and scholar. Having narrowly avoided a life of radicalization, Noor Huda founded the Institute for International Peacebuilding and runs a number of de-radicalization programs in Indonesia that focus on de-radicalization through narrative stories and credible voices. Today, my guest on the show is Noor Huda Ishmael. Um, Noor Huda, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. I'm very excited about everything that we're going to talk about. Thank you for having me. It, I'm thrilled that you're the perfect person for this podcast. And um, to start with, uh, well, I would like you to explain to our listeners um, why you're the perfect person for this show, because can you tell us a little bit about your background? Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Norhuda Ismail, and I'm sure everyone will understand that everyone of us has a turning point in our lives. And mine is uh, the first Bali bombing when I was for the Washington Post covering the first uh, that attack. I arrived early in the morning, but to my surprise, a couple months later, apparently, uh, some of those who implicated in that attack, my own roommate in, when I was in boarding school, 12, when I was 12 years old. So since that day, I have very personal questions. Why normal individual get involved? Why we read the same Quran? We, you know, we eat the same food. We play fo- football together, yet we end up completely different person, different trajectory. So, yeah. Then I went to the UK. I studied international security. It was a Northern Ireland. I got epiphany that there was a tiny NGO trying to help those who we call terrorists get involved. Or those got the terrorists, and then, you know, this NGO tried to help those who get involved in terrorism to start new life. Uh, then when I come back, I said, okay, after finishing this master, I want to start something new. And then I established the Institute for International. Uh, the Institute for International Peace Building as a way to help release terrorists to start new lives. That, that is basically who I am now. And and then I went to, then after doing a lot of field work, I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship again to take my PhD. And now I'm a visiting fellow here at the Rajaralem School of International Relations in Singapore, NTU. So it's it's kind of an amazing story to me. You were a, you were a journalist, so you're originally um, from Indonesia, even though you, you live in Singapore. And so you were a journalist covering the Bali bombing. Yes. And saw that it was one of your friends from school. I mean, I can't imagine what that could possibly have, have kind of felt like to you. What, how did you feel at that time? Yeah, back then I was shocked. I was confused and sad at the same time, you know, like I tried to, recom- to you know, revisit my old days, you know, like a flashback, you know, what happened, you know, let's, let's like normal school, you know, we didn't, 
the guy who was involved, named by the police, was very kind. In fact, he was my idol back then. So yeah, I mean, like uh, it took me some time to understand this. And but the more I work on the field, interview uh, those who are involved in terrorism inside and outside the prison, not only Indonesia but many places all over the world, the more I convinced that uh, you know most of the people there. There are three characteristics that we need to note or to under uh, the three characteristics that we need to know uh, before if if we want to understand this extremism first the notion of banality of evils those who involve in evil activities or those involved in terrorism they are banal it's just like regular guys it's like like one of us you know and then another concept that we should grasp will be the concept of process that none of them born, born none of them was born as a terrorist it required processes and second thing will be relationships they are relate understanding their relationship which is in other words, understanding their social network, you know. So that's how we should understand this very issue, I think. Yeah. So the original premise that I asked you about for this show was we were going to talk about um, the podcast series Caliphate and, um, and then kind of unpack all the things that are, are relevant to that podcast and, and how that relates to covering terrorism and as you said at the beginning of the show you were you are a former journalist as well so I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about this um the caliphate podcast came out in 2018 did you listen to it when it came out some of them some of them of course but not mm-hmm. all right yes which so the reason that we're talking about it now why it's it came out in 2018 but it's relevant again now because there's been this big controversy um, with the New York Times, um, and specifically the journalist who worked on this, um, Rukmini Kalimaki. So she has come under a lot of fire for the Canadian authorities arrested um, the main source in the podcast Caliphate, um, who was called Abu Husayfa. Um, that's not his real name, uh, but for the purposes of this podcast, we'll call him Abu Husayfa, so we don't have to keep flipping between the two. But he, so he's just been arrested in Canada. Um, for making all of this up. So he's been arrested for essentially terrorist hoax, which makes it seem like the whole podcast was uh, kind of based on this false premise and that he, he made he made up the whole story. He'd never been to Syria um, and that he's just this kind of uh, fantasist. First of all, Noor Huda, if I can ask you, what did you think of Caliphate? When Caliphate first came out and you listened to it, did you did you like it? Did you think it was well done? Did you think it sounded credible? Well, it's very hard to judge back then, you know, like uh, uh, I didn't really, I, like, I understand that it's because if you look at my work, you know, if you look at my work, I was always using the voice of what I call it credible voice, right? I always use yes. uh, the credible voice, well, whom I interpret. Basically, my program is, uh, most of my initiative will revolve around uh, give the former terrorists or former those who involved in this similar work the the support of Ali Faith, a second chance to start new life. But I also asked their help in double quote. I asked their favor to use their story as a way to prevent others to join. So when I heard about this Caliphate project, I think this is super interesting. You know, that's a, there was a inner voice, you know, to, to actually uh, saying the story but you know i didn't have i didn't check 
uh, in details, you know. But the whole idea, I was I was so fascinated the whole idea. And like like similar with mine, right? You know, basically I use, you know, all the interviews coming from formers, and then I use that interview as a way for me to prevent others not to join, to delegitimate the very cause of Islamic Caliphate, for instance. Yes, also on that point, Norhuda, so you introduced me, when I first started wanting to write about terrorism, you introduced me to Rangobrol, which you co-founded with uh, your brother Hakim. And so um, if I can just tell the listeners a little bit about uh, Rangobrol, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying, right? In that you, um, it's a place where former terrorists can tell their story. It's an online platform. And I've met several former terrorists through uh, Rangol Brol, including um, February, who we did a podcast with him called Road to Raqqa. So what you're saying about putting someone's story on the record and then extrapolating, um, I don't know, what would we say, lessons from that is very much in the model of caliphate. And that's exactly the model that you use, um, the narrative model. Well, I'm like... But- but, but the thing is with my, I, I didn't know that this guy apparently didn't actually travel to Syria. I didn't know. Unlike people, well, those I work with, those I interview, I know for a fact. Like February himself, I'm the one who picked him up, you know, from Raqqa, you know, from, I mean, like from Syria. I was in, in Syria to pick him up, you know. So I know the story of those who joined my program. I know their trajectory, you know. I will not give someone a platform without doing series of uh, due diligence uh, and then verification myself, you know. Yes, I remember when I interviewed February, he said you picked him up, I think it was on the border with Iraq, if I'm right. So, well, that's another question I want to ask you. So I've interviewed, yeah, maybe five or six former terrorists through you, um, two of whom were in Syria, um, but they are all, all five or six of them are, have all been convicted. So all uh, or were repatriated from Syria or served some time in prison here in Indonesia on terrorism related charges. So I'm sure that they were all um, former terrorists and, and went to Syria and were all involved. But I mean, how do we check Norhuda or how do we, I suppose what I want to say is, can we trust terrorists when they tell us their stories, even if we know, yes, they were in Syria? Or yes, they were, you know, part of the Bali bombings or whatever it might be. How do we know what they're telling us is true or not? First of all, we must super skeptical all the time with these people, you know, because, you know, we cannot verify. Uh, because it's in the end of the day, it's about convictions. In the end of the day, it's about what happened in their mind. We cannot really tell. So therefore, my work always revolved around disengagement rather than deradicalizations because deradicalization has to do with the cognitive, which is I cannot tell what is really going on in people's mind, you know. But behavior change, I can tell, you know. If they started to accept differences with others, mingle non-Muslim, meeting foreigners like you, I mean, like uh, this kind of is a sign of a behavior change. But in terms of what did you know what is really actually going on in their mind, I cannot control. I cannot. I cannot. You know, like I cannot uh, check. So the only thing that I can do, the only thing I can do, I use about. Uh, I, I use their story, uh, their brutal, their story showing the lies of ISIS. So I will be focusing on rather than why, but how. 
how processes of this individual to join and how processes of leaving if it possible when we try to understand the process how then we understand also mirrored ways of normal individual to join could be social media could be you know pengajian or islamic uh, formal discussion you know like uh, all this uh, gathering or through reading so so with the how question so that is the benefit of talking or the benefit of working with the former whether we should trust or not it's a different discussion you know i, I don't know if this is a weird question but i mean i I suppose what I want to ask is, does it really matter if what they're saying is, is true or not? Because I think if, you know, I've spoken to quite a few terrorists, as I've said, and, and all of them are, they would say, reformed, and they speak out against uh, radicalization, and they are very committed to working on a, on a range of programs. So, uh, and telling others very much that the message is, you know, I mean, February, for example, um, you know, he said we were lied to, you know, ISIS were lying, it was all this propaganda, it wasn't like we expected it to be, they did terrible things. Um, so does it matter, as long as people are kind of speaking out against it, does it matter if not every part of the story is, is true? That's tricky questions, you know, because the reason why I use formers again, you know, these people's, because these people might lend some credibility because we believe what they said is true. That's right. basically the very reason, you know, why. Because it's, it's going back to, it's about like, a, I, my work has been inspired by, you know, the cigarette campaign, you know. So those who used to smoke and then given up smoke because of, you know, some illness that he suffered because of smoking, these people hopefully will lend some credibility, yes. I've been smoking, I've been there, done this, done that, it was horrible, please don't smoke. I like have a very, you know, cute doctor, never smoke, clean, and then say, don't smoke, dude. And like, hello, I mean, like, you don't have such credibility. That's basically what I'm trying to say using this formula. And my technique is not new. It has been implemented for generations uh, uh, like coming from, let's say, right-wing, in Germany or left-wing in Italy, they, the government or some authorities also use the voices of this repentant outsider or the voices of former insider, you know, because they can reveal what the, the true nature of a joining an extremist extremist group. And with with my approach, it's uh, with and then in my case, I also use the same thing, but the only different because only because they are coming from the Islamist group, they use Islam as their narrative. I know because of the social media, I injected some of the uh, technique of engaging them through social media. I mean, I suppose it's. I never think of that too, you know, to what extent it's actually correct or not, you know. But that's very legit questions, you know, we should ponder, you know. I mean, I think it's interesting what you're saying because it's kind of, I mean, I suppose it's like another model would be addiction, right? That say former drugs, uh, sorry, drugs counselors or alcohol counselors are are also former um, former addicts. Otherwise, it's yes, it it's very difficult to kind of give advice or a way out or support if you haven't experienced it yourself. So I understand about credibility, um, but then I also understand what you're saying about you know, and also I suppose you're getting down to a deeper issue of well, what is truth? Because I think you just said. I mean, you just said, you know, someone's perception in their mind of what they saw can still be true, right? But it's their perception of how it was. Um, 
you know, in the moment. And these are obviously people who have been to very difficult places and in very, you know, um, stressful situations. So, it, you know, you're getting their version of events. Yeah, um, yeah. I think, you know, if you look at my work, it's, it's again, I always obsessed with the notion of how and also the impact of their choices, you know, to social relations, you know, the fact that, for instance, Fabri left Indonesia and then traveled, just basically what he said, that I wanted to meet my mom, but, you know, his decision yes. also influenced others, you know, influenced others, his relations, his schooling, same kind of thing like this, you know, that I have been using, you know, if you look at, okay, you might make this decision, but think about the consequences, you know, what might happen to your extended social relation or uh, what you call it, the direct social relations, you know, that is always the way I work and I always focus on the emotive aspect, the emotional aspect of the decision rather than, let's say, ideological justifications, you know. Right, and it sounds like you're saying as well that it's, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's more about in your work the systemic issues behind it um, in terms of, like you said, how people get there and how people leave rather than perhaps the actual minutiae of kind of like what was it like every day in Syria. It's about the bigger picture. Is that right? Yes, that, that's why I'm, okay, maybe it sounds too academical. You know, I always look at this issue into three lenses of micro. What is the subjective condition, you know, of this individual, you know, loopholes, uh, pothole in their lives? and then may so how this individual relate to the society sometimes this individual join to you know radical group because they are they suffer from social exclusion they fail to join the mainstream uh, you know outfit or light organizations and then they join to you know this this uh, radical group like jama islamia or jama ansaru daula so and then i look at also the macro level you know more the structural issue as well you know so the, the narrative of Khalifat here, the narrative of Khalifat is so powerful because, and then because they anchor the narrative not, not out of the blue, you know, it has a historical one, it has, a, you know, some hope dimensional one, but of course it's false, it's not true, it's a utopian one, but, uh, but for, for Muslims, you know, for some Muslims, with this caliphate narrative, if these these people do not have enough under, deep understanding of history, so therefore, if we want to boil down this very issue, in fact, uh, it is a two uh, diabolical group, which is what I call uh, lift Islam people who believe that uh, we need to understand history and context to understand Islam, and then the other one, what I call it, imagine Islam, you know, the textual people who like, okay, Islam should be like this, should be like that, you know. So there is the real contestation if we really want to go deeper, you know. It's not just someone going to Syria and then, you know, join so-called Khalifate. It is the representations of this uh, perennial contestation within Islam, you know. I see your point on that. Um, I want to go back to what you were telling me about the Bali bombings, because it's fascinating that you were a journalist at the time, because I want to talk about how journalists can potentially mess up much of the narrative um, about terrorism. So the fact that you are yourself a former journalist, uh, sorry, so the fact that you are yourself a former journalist is fascinating for this topic. Um, but what do you think of journalists covering 
terrorism. And so particularly, you know, Rukmini Kalamaki of the New York Times has, has um, you know, she's been he- very heavily criticised for caliphate, for not fact-checking, but also for the way that she presented um, Abu Husayfa. Um, and the criticism is that she didn't go, I think, what you're saying, you know, she didn't go deep enough into the sort of systemic issues. She just kind of presented this kind of every every man person who... Um, she didn't make I don't think she looked at the complexities enough is is some of the criticism but what do you well what do you think about journalists in the way that we in the way that we report on terror and I suppose when I say journalists I'm really thinking about western journalists take on terror because okay I I just I cannot speak of journalism all the journalists you know I respect them they there's a it's, it's a noble professions some of them really, really work so hard just to verify a thing, which is just a noble profession. And, you know, it is one of the important pillars in democracy, right? Uh, one important pillars in democracy. And in my case, at least back then, when I worked for American newspaper, you know, the obsession with an Al-Qaeda was so acute, you know. So I can only get attention if I say this guy linked to Al-Qaeda. So to simplify, you know, to simplify boiled down to like what they call it, Al-Qaeda, linked to Al-Qaeda, which is maybe this guy traveling to Afghanistan and they didn't actually fight. And then yet we call them, oh, trained by Al-Qaeda. And Al-Qaeda wasn't there back then, you know, so this, and because of, again, you have to grab the audience attention through deadline and then, you know, to see, to see what you call it, your headline, basically. I think this is the problem, you know, therefore, and being a journalist, you have to cover so many different things in the same time. You keep changing the topic all the time, which is a noble job. But imagine if, let's say, Western journalists, you just arrive in a country that you don't speak the language, and you just arrive and you still have a jet lag, and all of a sudden you have to report something, right? Which is a bit hard, you know. Therefore, a lot of criticism to Western journalists uh, as, a, you know, picturing things through their lens, not depicting what is really going on. It's interesting you say that because there's an article I was when I was researching for this podcast. There's an article by um, it, this is in Baffler.com. It's called "Stalking the Story" by Rafia Zakari, and she says something that is I mean, it's very similar to what you've just said. But this jumped out at me. So she talks about journalists, Western journalists, as predators, and she says the predator journalist is a creation of the war on terror whose narrative requires all that is Western to be anointed while everything else is reduced as a tool in service of it. Um, you said it better than me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying about it, looking at it through a very specific lens, which is um, unhelpful um, and creates this very stark us and them side of it, I think. Um, Precisely, you know, like there is no gray of uh, nuance, you know, I, I'm almost obsessed with the notion of nuance, you know, shade of gray, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, they break the law, but, you know, because, have you seen the movie Joker, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like that, you know, you bad, bad guy, there are some, view, not viewed, I don't know how to say, even this February, yes, February indeed, one time in his own li- in life, joined in a, cre- a, a joined to a very creepy organization, ISIS. But if you understand his story, how he joined, then you understand a bigger picture. It's not just uh, a creepy organization, ISIS, you know, bigger than that, complicated than that, right? 
It's very, very complicated, and that's something that I've noticed in my work. It, I think you're absolutely right to use the word nuance um, and grey area. Like, when I first started reporting on terrorists, um, on former terrorists and terrorism, I remember, like, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I thought that they were just going to, you know, cut my head off there and then. Um, and now, I mean, having met so many of them and understanding the complexity of their stories, um, has completely changed my view of why how people become radicalized and like you said how nuanced and how complex it is. Yeah, I think the thing that I've learned from spending time at Rangobrol. So whenever I'm in Jakarta, I, I try to go to Rangobrol and um, have friends there. And obviously, your brother Hakim is there. Um, I think what Rangobrol has really taught me is two things: the complexity about um, meeting former terrorists and the fact that it's about so much more than just one thing. Um, and also that um, there's no need to judge what someone has done. Um, you can understand that, you know, going to Syria was maybe not a great thing to do. And maybe, you know, when they were there, they did things that, um, you know, they now regret. Um, but the idea of kind of labeling someone as a terrorist forever and uh, judging their choices misses the point right and i think what you were saying is the point is why do they go how do they come back what makes them leave and it's by picking at those things that we're ever going to kind of get anywhere near to understanding and perhaps that's what journalists and in particular western journalists um fail to do i mean i don't know do you think i mean is it that maybe we we don't care <laughs> No, 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 okay. To me, one thing super important to note in our discussion here is that understanding doesn't mean supporting. You know, people tend to misunderstood me. You know, wow, you older. You know, sometimes people think I'm supporting these people. You know, like, you no. Know, for instance, I was, I was heavily bullied, and you know, when I appeared on national TV and Matan Najwa discussing what why we should, you know, with what happened to the what, the plight of Indonesian in Syria in Syrian camp now. I told them, you know, because the question, well, I was posed the question, you know, should we take them or should not? But I, I, I suggested, can we paraphrase the questions? Do we want to have identified individual or not? And how about the humanity? How about kid? Only asking that question, I was heavily bullied by social media, you know, as a, someone who support, you know, like a ISIS cause, which is like, hello, man, this is ridiculous. But no, I don't need to fight with them, you know. I mean, is that part of the problem, though, from the way that the media has portrayed them? So we 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 put this very stark message of this is a because like one of the criticisms of Rukmini's uh, Caliphate podcast was that they focus on all these terrible moments. So when he I think he kills two people, so he shoots someone and then he stabs someone in the heart, and they spend a huge amount of time telling the kind of very sensational stories about this and perhaps not enough time explaining why someone would go and like you said how they leave and just just all everything else that goes into it so i mean do you think the media are i don't know complicit or are we somehow at fault for the way that because i mean of course people are going to be scared right of course people are going to say no leave them in camps in syria if all you're hearing is all of the violence and all of the the awful things that have happened there without any of the understanding of what has led up to it. You look at, you know, my initiative on the ground, the one, and I send it to you, the, the what my work in the community. No, I've been working, you know, in the last 12 years, I've been working directly with 
those who involved in terrorism I, inside the prison, the terrorists are reformed. But in the last three years, I have been working with the community leaders. Because when they come, okay, eventually these terrorists will be released and they have to go back to community. And then sadly, there is no systematic effort yet by any government or any donor to train or to, to educate the community leaders. Because if the people, you know, if the community fail to accept them, then it is natural that they will go back to their old group, right? So, yeah, this is the thing that, you know, so that we need to create what I call it, what I call a positive uh, intra-group relations, you know. So we, th because why people keep prejudice, people so worry, as you mentioned very well here, Aisha, because there is no bridge, there is no bridge, there is no positive engagement whatsoever, you know. So we lost the chance that we might have, you know, their story. They can be, I, 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 I keep telling, I strongly believe, you know, like, a, we can always use their story. We can use their, you know, ex brutal experience to prevent others in the future, you know, not to stumble in the same mistake. Therefore, I make a documentary film there because uh, through this film, you know, people can watch, people can see. So, yeah. So another criticism of Caliphate was that it led to these policy changes in Canada. So um, Canada had a sister, a repatriation system of uh, former ISIS fighters and people who are now in camps. Um, they were being repatriated to Canada and then it, everything was blamed on Caliphate when it came out that people were so terrified in Canada of the idea of former terrorists walking around that the Canadian government changed the policy and decided that they were no longer going to repatriate anybody. Um, and there's, there's a dispute about whether this was true. What we do know is that the caliphate was actually discussed, I think, in Canadian Parliament. So like it was brought up, but to what extent um, we can blame these policy changes on a podcast um, is not quite clear. Some people have made the link and some people haven't. Um, but you very much, I think, through your work, do use narratives in an attempt to change the policy, right? So you um, have, yeah, so do, so, I mean, do you think that that is the best way to go about it? And so you, do you think that the narratives, it's so important to have these powerful narratives because it, we can affect that kind of change if we do it properly? I think so too, you know, and, and, and if we look at my work, I also create the, I, I create compelling narrative, emotional narrative, but also I come up with intervention in the same times, you know. So I because I have okay because I'm, I have a background as a journalist. Journalist has a very you know powerful influence because of they 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 play such a, they are playing unique roles you know to shape the public narrative. But to me in this very issue because I used to be part of the network myself I know these people I need to come up with even those simple interventions as an acupuncturist I to do. I have to do a tiny interventions that I hope it will have a ripples. And most of the problem with uh, tackling violent extremism in Indonesia is prison problems, you know. So therefore, I have a lot of work in prisons, you know, with this former, how to deal with them, should we segregate them, should we combine them, what to do, and then all of this uh, justice, criminal justice system, especially on, on terrorism that I have been working up to this day with my team, you know. Just to explain a little bit about the prison system, um, and obviously you know more than me or Huda, but um, in, Indonesian prisons are, uh, I think, at double capacity, massively overcrowded, and there is an argument that 
people who are not radicalized become radicalized in prison. Is that is that the easiest? It's more complicated than that. Is that is that the best way of describing it quickly? Have you ever visited one of Indonesian prisons? I just want to give you an example of prison in Jakarta. You know, uh, one of the prison Cipinang in Jakarta. It was designed during the colonial time. It's a, it should be de the design of the prison is only for. 800s, but now it's around 4,000, 2,000, 3,000. So overcrowded is definitely one of the issues. And then second thing is, of course, understaffed, and then lack of resources. It is classical issue. Put, and then we add another layer, which is now terrorist prisoners. It's a create completely new dynamic. But the Indonesian government has been working a lot, right, to handle, to reduce this issue. So they create a specific. Uh, prison, you know, in Porong, uh, in Porong, the specific treatment, you know, in, you know, in Nusa Kambangan and also in PNPT, they have, they, they're doing it. Uh, I, I do believe they, they're trying and they are not complete. They are not fully, not fully successful, I would say, but they are trying, but therefore I need to fill the gap that's, that my government hasn't really looked at with this capacity building for hyper-local community leaders. It's interesting when I meet former terrorists, because um, there's, so I have, this is interesting, I want to ask you about this. We're almost at the end, but just I want to ask you this question. In the article that I read to you earlier, called the one called Stalking the Story by Rafia Zakaria, she says, she says something which I find very odd, but tell me if you agree with this or not. So she's explaining Caliphate and she says, we get a young man named Abu Husayfa, a chap Kalimaki through her extensive online trawling of various jihadist forums has managed to cajole into an interview at a hotel in Canada. If you, like me, are wondering why this real terrorist would agree to such a thing, you'll have to keep wondering. And I read that and thought, that, that doesn't sound true to me. In my experience, former terrorists absolutely love to talk to you. <laughs> Is that your experience? I mean, I can't stop them talking to me. So I just think it's funny that some people seem to think that terrorists are reticent about talking because I, they, I can't get them to stop. <laughs> That's true. You know, I've been talking to terrorists, uh, former terrorists uh, all over the world, not only in Indonesia. You know, I, I talked to, let's say, a former terrorist in France. Uh, he's, he was involved in a movement uh, not Islamist terrorists, you know, uh, Corsica, Corsican, you know, Corsican. Oh, yeah. they partner, they are partner, lover. they share a lot, keep talking. I met one of a former Basque activists also, you know, past, you know, involved in terrorism, blow up things. It's fascinating. And then all of them share similarities, you know, require yes. their, partner, their, you know, their banner, require processes, and they are super charm, you know, they are super charm. Individual, sadly, are like that. But some of them yeah. are creepy, you know. It's okay, though. I mean, they're creepy. Yeah, they are. I mean, even like Ali Imran, who you know is responsible. Well, was found responsible for the Bali bombing. I mean, it, you know, a, a great raconteur. You know, the way he told the story was. I mean, like you said, fascinating. It almost sounds, you know, impolite to kind of put it that way. But I think. Yeah, when you get started talking to terrorists, they often just come out with just the most amazing stories. Um, yeah, and won't stop talking. So <laughs> I think it's, it's we, 
I don't know. I think the jury's still out about how we put people on the record um, and who we put on the record and how much we trust them. But I, like you, am going to stick to convicted terrorists because even though it's less sexy as a story for a journalist, I think it's much safer. I mean, like February's story. I mean, I did discuss his reasons for going to Syria, but it's a lot sexier to say he went to Syria because he hated Western people and wanted to cut everybody's head off than it is to say, well, he went to see his mum. <laughs> because people are like, because, and for some people that doesn't sound credible. Um, you know, if you don't grow up in... I mean, they are like that. This is always my approach, you know. I like to shock people with a different, different perspective, you know. The fact that I work uh, with, uh, you know, like <laughs> here in Singapore, especially Singapore, you know, like uh, or if I study in the West, I study in St. Andrews. Imagine I, my opening remark, okay, my name is Neruda, I share them with one of the Bali bombers. Like freak out everyone, you know. Yeah, so just for background, your friend that you're talking about who's with Ali Imran, he was one of the bomb makers and is the one who, brilliant engineer, who kind of set up the, the detonators and the, on the mobile phones and things like that. Um, so that's who you're talking about for context. When you, you know, you call him your friend, you say you looked up to him. So the last question that I have for you is, I mean, how close do you think you were to being radicalized? Like how, how easily could that have been your life? I used to be part of the network myself. I was recruited into Darul Islam myself. I used to share exactly the same worldview. I used to believe that the Indonesian government is infidel government worth replacing with more Islamic one. I used to believe that, okay, jihad is justified ways to achieve any political goals. But it was love. It's so cheesy. When I had a, a crash with the daughter of my, the one of the teachers in my school, I took her date for a couple of time. I was caught up. And then, you know, the talent scout for the process of mobilization of graduates from the school to study, to study, double quote, to get scholarship. So me, uh, I was recruited, it means potential, but so me as a morally corrupt student, so I was not eligible for that scholarship. Imagine, you know, if I didn't date with the daughter of one of my teacher's school, imagine, <laughs> the whole story will be very different. I'm serious. I was, you know, I was so upset I didn't get that scholarship, you know. No, I feel grateful, you know, oh my God, thank God, you know, that, you know. Wow. <laughs> most of my, well, I wrote that in my book. I candidly said, this is the, this is the funny story, you know. But I wrote I wrote a book called My Friend the Terrorist, and then I have to write this very episode, right? Because this is a really, really new turning, not turning, I mean, like things that prevented me to go to that direction that far, you know. So I went to see her again because I went to see her. I need to get permission whether I can write our brief love story. And because she's married already, and I have to talk to her husband, of course, and her husband apparently part of uh, uh, was a new start, respected to start in in boarding school. And I met, met him. I met him. I said, "Oh, I want to write about my time in boarding school." And then he said, "Wow, that is an excellent idea, Huda." But I said, "I have one thing to you know, as a journalist, I have to get a permission from you. What is it? You know, you know, I have I have a story bit with your current wife now. Hmm. So can I talk to your wife? And then. The wife come in, I give the script, I give the script, I have to give the script first. And then she read the script, you know what she said? It's too short, your story. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So she, so she enjoyed that part too, you know, the fact that I took her with the pechak, I was worried, went this, and then I was caught, you know, then then the teacher had to, you know, because it's very, it's a criminal sin, a cardinal sin for you to take her out back then in that very, you know, environment, boarding school like that. So I caught, and then I was known as a, someone who took, you know, like, I was bad, you know, I had a very bad reputation in my school as a morally corrupt young Santri, you know, young Islamic student. So I was not picked up. But my friend, those who went to Afghanistan, uh, those who got scholarship, end up involved in terrorism, you know, like, so that super close, Aisha. You know. So, I mean, I think that that's a great story to end on. So you're, the path diverged. <laughs> but it's true, I'm not, making, I'm not making up. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Norhuda. I, as I said, I could, um, I could spend all day discussing this. What a great topic and um, what great work you do and have done. And thank you so much for helping me with all the work that I've done on this topic over the years. And thank you for being on the show with us today. Thank and, you. Um, and I hope to speak to you soon. Our thanks to Norhuda for joining us on this week's episode of Southeast Asian Dispatches. Next week, be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda, our podcast series on current affairs in Singapore. This is Aisha Llewellyn from North Sumatra, Indonesia, for us.